All glory, laud, and honor be to thee, Redeemer King. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Gospel readings for this Palm Sunday are jarring. They leave us wondering how we got from point A to point B, from the triumphal entry of our Lord to our Messiah hanging on a wooden cross. And while I was thinking about this tension this week and preparing for this morning, I happened upon an interview between Krista Tippett and the famed cellist Yo-Yo Ma. I commend the interview to you. Yo-Yo Ma spoke of the great Spanish cellist Pablo Casals who claimed that the notes that he sought to play had within them infinite variety. I didn't know what they were talking about, but it was fascinating and elevated and energetic. I was gaining a, a grammar for how to talk about music and why it's so effective and effective in our, in our lives. Well, the interview goes on, and Yo-Yo Ma uh, quotes Isaac Stearns, whose famous statement says that music takes place between the notes. Now, admittedly, when I first heard that, I thought it all sounded a bit pedantic. And I don't mean any offense to the musicians or the artists in the room, but your type tends to be a bit pedantic in the best sense of that term. But I like listening in on these conversations as an outsider. I like hearing how musicians think about and process their craft. But I'm thinking, help me here a bit. I need a bit more to make sense of what you're talking about. And then Yo-Yo Ma himself raises the question, well, what exactly does it mean to say that the music takes place between the notes? Yes, Mr. Ma, or Mr. Yo-Ma, however you say that. Do tell us. And he clarifies with the following statement. Well, how do you get from note A to note B? Is it a smooth transfer? It's automatic? It feels easy. You glide from one note into the next note. Or do you have to reach physically or mentally or effortfully, reach to go from one note to another? Could the next note be a part of the first note or could the next note be a different universe? Have you just crossed into some amazing boundary and suddenly the second note is a revelation? And it hit me, Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, are all rolled into one this morning. And I suggest to you that the force of our gospel readings is found in between the notes. That is, in between the space, between the first reading of Jesus' triumphal entry and the second reading of the crucifixion. I would also suggest that note A does not move, move smoothly into note B. In fact, there is effort, and there's strain, and the second note of Jesus' crucifixion is indeed a different universe. The second note is the crossing of an amazing boundary. It's a revelation. The music of our text this morning take place in between these notes, and Jesus tells us as much. Immediately after his triumphal entry, he weeps, he cries over Jerusalem. They just don't understand who I really am. And the implications of this misunderstanding are enormously tragic. In our first reading, 
the disciples praise his triumphal entry. And it's worth pointing out this morning that these are Jesus' disciples who are praising him here. They're the ones who are recognizing that he is the Messiah, that he's the king who has come to Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom here on earth. And they're praising him. They're singing to him. They're quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they're also embodying Psalm 118. That psalm also says, with branches in hand, join the festal procession. Well, why not? Here they are, joining in the procession of the king, with palm branches in hand. So what's going on in this scene? Well, the king has returned. And apparently these disciples are making quite a scene. They're making a fuss. And they get this aspect of Jesus' identity. They understand that he is indeed the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed of God who's come forth to establish God's kingdom on earth. This is our king. Well, the religious establishment shows up as they are wont to do. And what do they say? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, it's worth pointing out, I think, that the, the Pharisees are especially insightful here as well. They understand what's going on. Teacher, they say in effect, you do know what your disciples are doing, right? They're praising you as if you're the Messiah. They're praising you like you're the king that's now returned to Jerusalem. They're invoking themselves right now and involving themselves right now in acts of sedition. But Jesus, there are consequences to these kinds of actions. People die because of these kinds of things. And then Jesus retorts, well, I tell you, they keep quiet, even the stones are going to cry out. What a line. What what a response. Who actually says things like that? Even inanimate objects would by necessity cry out in adoration of me because my very being, my, my, my very presence, the force of my triumphal entry demands to be noticed. It demands to be observed. By the very nature of who I am as king, that is a creator king, someone or or something has to shout out in adoration. Something has to praise. Somebody has to give thanksgiving. I must be worshipped. And you know the rocks, they know who I am. They'll cry out. Oh Jesus, you're so seditious. You're so provocative. And he's so true. So you see, the Pharisees understand what's going on. These disciples think Jesus is their king. And he is the king. So everyone seems to get it. Everyone seems to understand. The king is coming back to Jerusalem. He's riding on a humble donkey, a humble colt, coming back to establish God's kingdom in their midst. No more tyranny of foreign domination. No more insults from the Roman legions and the impious Jewish guards. We've seen his activity. We know that God's hand is on Jesus of Nazareth. He speaks with the authority of God himself. So the first note of his public ministry, note A, is going to lead naturally and smoothly into the second note of his public exaltation as king of Israel. We see the hand of God clearly playing the instrument of this story, and we know exactly how the climax will come in its crescendo. Jesus is going to be on the throne in Jerusalem, establishing peace in the world. But remember, 
the music is taking place between the notes. The triumphal entry does not run smoothly into our next narrative from this morning's reading. There's a strain. The second note is a different universe. The second note is indeed a revelation. Why? Because King Jesus is unlike any king they could have ever anticipated. And precisely at this point, in the space between the notes of our text this morning, is where everybody, Pharisees and disciples, they get Jesus so terribly, terribly wrong. The establishment of the kingdom of God in this world is unlike any kingdom they understood. King Jesus rides on in majesty to do battle with the very cosmic powers that hold the entirety of his created world hostage. You see King Jesus this morning, gird for battle, rides on to stamp out the powers of sin and death. These powers, they have a stranglehold on everything that we hold dear in this world. These powers, they have our children in sight. They have our culture in sight. The insidious character is present in everything that makes creatures creature, in everything that makes a human a human. For all of our diversity across this broad sweep of our globe, everyone has sin and death in common. Everyone. And we all know the ravaging effects on the everyday existence of our lives. Syria, Babylonia, Alexander in Greece, Octavius in Rome, Mao, Stalin, Hitler. Child's play, Jesus demonstrates, because he's after the very underlying and overriding powers that hold the entire cosmos captive. Jesus is saying, I'm going to put my foot on the neck of death and sin until they lay motionless under my power. And here we are again on this Palm Sunday morning, witnessing it all together. So yes, as our sermon hymn declares this morning, ride on, King Jesus. Ride on in majesty. Ride on in lowly pomp to die. O Christ, thy triumph now begins or captive death and conquered sin. The triumphal entry emerges from a musical score that's already prepared for us in Psalm 118. It's a thanksgiving hymn. It's a praise for God's salvation. His steadfast love endures forever is repeated again and again in Psalm 118. I shared this with the, the, the Sunrise uh, Sunday uh, uh, Bible study group on Thursday morning, but the Scottish minister, Alistair Begg, defined Christian praise music in the following way. One word, two notes, three hours. Well, I get that. And um, the Psalms can be repetitive too. Things can be said over and over again. And it does in Psalm 118 as well. But here's how Psalm 118 ends. May I read it to you? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifices with branches up to the horns of the altar. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you this morning 
that the Bible never ceases to shine and surprise. Did you hear the last line there in Psalm 118? Up to the horns of the altar. The triumphal procession is going somewhere in Psalm 118. It's going up to the horns of the altar. Up to the place of sacrifice where thanksgiving and purification offerings are made for our account. Up to the place where blood has to be spilt. Up to the place where the aggregate force and presence of sin has to be dealt with. I've never noticed this in Psalm 118 before, much less in connection with our two texts. But this is exactly where Jesus' triumphal procession is going as well. King Jesus is riding in triumph up to the horns of the altar. He rides on to act as our king and our priest, to offer his own blood on the horns of God's eternal altar, so to render powerless the presence of sin in our midst. Isaiah was so right when he said, forget the former things. I'm about to do something new in your midst. Doesn't get any newer than this. King Jesus is about about to make all things new by the effects of his atoning work. He's heading to the horns of the altar for you and for me. And even the stars and the stones will notice and they're going to be glad. During this coming Holy Week, as we move into the passion of our Lord, in anticipation of his resurrection from the dead, we celebrate and remember this central moment of time and eternity. Before and after are like double helix that move around this defining and universe-altering activity of King Jesus, who is our king, our priest, and our sacrificial victim all at once. Right on, King Jesus. Right on in majesty. The disciples and the Pharisees understood so much about Jesus and his triumphal entry. They knew the implications of his actions. They knew that he was living into the messianic drama that they all longed for, but some of them resisted as well. But they misunderstood so much more. The symphony of Jesus' messianic mission, the musical notes of his magisterial and triumphal entry as king, they slide into a minor key. The space between the notes becomes discordant because kings don't become king by dying. As Ernst Kesemann said, the sole distinguishing feature that radically separates Christianity and its Lord from all other religions and their gods is the cross. Indeed, Isaiah told us our God would reign. Well, how does he reign? In the suffering and the death of his son. What was a minor key to our perception was in fact the symphony of God's greatest orchestral achievement. Note A leads to another world in note B. And the universe will never be the same. I say to you this morning, if you follow King Jesus up into the horns of the altar and you recognize him as your king like no other, a king that's triumphed over sin and death. May I say to you, 
like the entirety of the universe, your world will never be the same again. Amen.